Do you love early intervention, but feel like you need more mentorship and information to thrive in this setting? We're here to provide a safe, inclusive community where we learn from and uplift one another. It's our mission to prepare students and practitioners to be confident and competent working in early intervention. Hi, I'm Amira Johnson. I'm Danielle DiLorenzo. And I'm Sarah Putt. And together, we're the real OTs of early intervention. Good morning, Sarah. How are you doing today? I am doing really well. Amira, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Danielle? I'm doing really well. I am staring at the sunshine and the palm trees, and that always makes me smile. So today we are going to talk about transitioning into early intervention. Whether you're coming from a different practice area or starting out as a new grad, we are going to talk all about tips and tricks to help you be as successful as you can if you want to enter the early intervention practice. But first, here is a word from our fabulous sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Marvelous Miracles OT, a platform created to empower and equip families and therapists with the tools and resources to help little miracles fulfill big dreams. We received a ton of questions about how to best prepare to enter the world of early intervention. So today we are really going to focus on some basic tips and tricks that can help you feel competent and confident when transitioning into the early intervention profession. So Sarah, what is one thing that comes to mind when you hear that somebody wants to enter into early intervention, but doesn't have any previous experience working with babies or families? I think one of the biggest things that you can do, and this can either be through a paid role or some sort of volunteer work, or even just in kind of your personal life, it's really trying to gain as much experience and as much exposure to working with children from birth to three or birth to five, depending on the location and the early intervention services that are provided in your area. So this really could be looking into getting shadowing hours or volunteer hours, working at some sort of an early childhood center, maybe a preschool if they happen to get young enough that you can really get that experience. And Also, if you have friends that have kids, family members that have kids, just do your best to really get around as many kids within this age range as you possibly can, because every kiddo is different and really seeing the wide range of developmental levels, what kids like to do, what kids don't like to do, how they interact with their parents, how they interact with their siblings. And really, like it doesn't even have to be specifically like shadowing an OT in early intervention, which would be great. But even just kind of that that grand overview of seeing kids, observing kids, interacting with kids across multiple different areas, but all within that like typical age range. Hold all the babies. That's what I always say. Pre-COVID, it was hold all the babies. Feel how a baby feels. I have had a lot of students that have been like, I don't know how to interact with babies. And I'm like, that's fair. You just get comfortable with holding babies, feeling how they move, seeing how they're interacting with their parents. I think that that's the number one best advice that I always give. What about you, Amira? Well, I have to just go back and say, I love Sarah that you're emphasizing the interactions with babies and toddlers, because I think it's so easy for someone to say, well, 
I don't have hands-on experience, but I know all of my child development milestones by heart. I can rattle them off. And while that is great to have that foundational knowledge, I know that you absolutely have to also have that hands-on interactive experiences because those children present so different than what those typical milestones that we read about and that we have to memorize while we're in OT school. So when I started out as a new graduate, yes, I did have all of that basic information just for my pediatrics course and drilling those milestones into my head. But what I really drew upon was my experiences as a newborn care specialist, as a nanny, as a child care department manager of a gym. So I was able to see what does typical development look like? What can I expect? And then that gave me such a different perspective or such a good perspective, I'll say, with working with kiddos who may have not been developing typically because I had something to compare it to in real life. So I would just say it's so important to know those milestones, yes, but to also be able to have those real life experiences. And I love, Sarah, that you're talking about it doesn't have to be formal or structured. It can be your niece or your nephew. These are just such valuable experiences that will teach you so much before you even get into this setting. So Sarah, I 100% agree. And I love that you were highlighting that. I love that you bring up, Amira, about the milestones and having this knowledge about what the developmental norms are. And I think one of the things as early interventionists, we quickly realize that this is just a number on a page. It is not a true reflection of the variation of development. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there are major areas of concerns when developmental milestones are not met. I also think that one of the other things that you can do to help prepare for your transition is to read up about common diagnoses. You can also check out our earlier podcast where we talk about a variety of diagnoses and we kind of dive into what are the common ones that we see and why that's so important because having that foundational understanding of the various diagnoses that you will come in contact with will just help to better prepare you in developing those intervention plans when you're working alone with the family and can help you treatment plan in a way that is in the best need of the child. What we'll do is we'll make sure to provide a link in the show notes to that episode so you can check that out and become a little bit more familiar with some of the diagnoses that are found in early intervention. So in addition to having a foundational understanding of the diagnoses that are going to be present in early intervention, Sarah, what is some advice for individuals that are transitioning from the adult setting that are now going to be working with our little babies? I think it's really important to bring this topic up because quite often we will get questions from people asking about this. I work with adults. I work in a skilled nursing facility. I work in mental health. I work in what people would assume to be very different practice areas that really on like on a surface level, if you just look at it, you'd be like, there's no way that there's any similarities across these practice areas. But over my years of experience and having talked with so many different OT practitioners that work in different practice areas and practice areas that I assume there's no correlation, there's no overlap, what I've really come to learn is the framework. The framework of occupational therapy is the same across the board, regardless if you're working in early intervention with the youngest clients from birth to three years of age, or you're working with clients that are 90 plus years old. If you're working in more of an orthopedic setting, mental health, like whatever it is, it really just goes back to that framework. And I think a lot of people get stuck on, oh, but it's babies. Like how, how am I going to address this? How am I going to utilize my OT lens with babies? I just, it's hard because their experience is coming from a different area, but really it all boils down to that framework. 
framework of occupational therapy and what it is that we are there to do and to help with and to assist our clients and our families with. And really, when I'm talking about that framework, it is focusing on the occupations, focusing on the routines, focusing on the families and really making it client-centered. And then going from there and building upon that on the areas of weakness, the areas of strength, but really go back to the basics of what occupational therapy is and utilize that to break down activities, do that task analysis. And even though it might look different, the framework is still the same. I love that you say that because so often we forget that our practice is guided by a framework that is applicable to all across a lifespan. And I think the concept of working with little babies after you've worked with adults for your entire career can be something where it almost has this hesitancy, like, can I do this? Of course you can. If you have a love for babies and a love for wanting to work in early intervention, that's all you need. All the rest of it is going to come when you get in there and you start to realize, hey, this isn't as scary as I thought it would be transitioning. Now, another thing that is important is in other practice settings, you might not be working with parents or the caregivers as often or in a way that you do within early interventions. So it's really important that you have a foundational understanding of interacting with parents and including them every step of the way. Amira, talk to me about this. So this was probably the part that I struggled the most with when I first started out in this setting. And I have to admit, it was a little bit of imposter syndrome rearing its ugly head for me, as I know that it does for many of us. But I just felt like, well, how am I going to navigate this discussion with this parent when I'm not even a parent myself? You know, if they're asking me questions about discipline style or just parenting advice. And I think that I had to shift my mindset to understand that the whole family is really our client in early intervention. So you have to have these discussions with parents when they come to you for advice because yes, you are treating that child, but behind the scenes, the parent is the one working with them. So it's just so important to be comfortable navigating those discussions with parents. I think something that personally helped me is I started to follow a lot of different parenting accounts and social media. I started looking at blogs, reading articles about parenting so that I could just get a better sense of how to navigate those kinds of conversations. I also think just being confident, being confident that you are an expert in your field, even if you don't feel like it because you're fresh out on the job, which was the case for me. But I think I just had to tell myself that I am qualified. Qualified, I have this expertise and these parents are looking to you to be that expert. So you just have to exude that confidence, even if you're just kind of faking it till you make it. <laughs> As a parent and a professional that has had experience within the early intervention setting, I will tell you the most meaningful part, at least as a parent, was having a practitioner that wanted to connect with me, be an active listener, and truly understand where I was at without any judgment of what they thought my child and I needed, but rather listening to what we actually were expressing were our areas where we needed additional support and then helping me feel confident as a parent that I can do this. And one of the things that I admire the most about therapists is when they say, oh, you know what? I'm not sure, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to look this up or I'm going to get back to you on what I think might be the best way to approach this. It shows me that you're not trying to make up something. It shows me that you actively want to pursue an answer to a question that you might not have the answer to. And that is so meaningful to a parent because here I am not knowing the answer 
And it almost makes me feel better if you don't have the answer right away too, because then it's like, okay, I don't feel this sense of like, I should have known this, or is there something else that I can do? And it really helps strengthen that therapist parent relationship and build that foundation. And it's really an empowering process. And just to piggyback off you, Danielle, just a quick note to new graduates who are in this setting. I just want to reiterate, I know we've said this a lot. You are not expected to know everything there is to know about everything. So although I say you are the expert and this is your expertise, I don't want you to feel like that means I need to know everything because that confidence that you exude, yes, you need to have that, but you can also be very truthful and honest with these families. And I have done the same thing. So don't just say, well, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But like Danielle is saying, just make sure that you follow up and you're going to find that answer and you do find that answer and you come back. And that'll not only strengthen that relationship, but that'll also strengthen your skills as a therapist. Another thing that I wanted to bring up right now is I think we've been talking about people that maybe have found a job or maybe have a job offering trying to get into early intervention. But if you're one of those practitioners that wants to get into early intervention, but maybe there's no job opportunities within your area right now, but you might have come across a job offering that's in a a school district or maybe an outpatient pediatric clinic, maybe in a NICU, one of these kind of surrounding areas that it might not necessarily be solely focused on early intervention. But I wanted to say that don't shy away from these other experiences because for me personally, when I first started practicing as an occupational therapist, I was working across the board in pediatrics. I was doing school-based therapy. I was doing clinic-based therapy. And I was also dipping my toes in the water of early intervention. And I came to realize that my experiences working in the areas surrounding early intervention really helped me when I got into the early intervention practice area because I was able to guide the families when they started transitioning to the school district. I was able to explain to them the difference between the IFSP and the IEP. I was able to talk about, hey, I, you know, I think right now we've been doing home-based therapy, but I think your child is very well suited to transition to a clinic and start receiving clinic-based therapy. And that's kind of on the other end of early intervention. But then also, I know, Amira, you have a lot of experience working in the NICU and understanding that process, understanding where the families and the kiddos are coming from when they're transitioning from the NICU into early intervention. So I just wanted to take a second to say, if you can't find a job in EI, even if like that's where you want to go, that's where your heart is directing you to go, it's okay to pursue a job in another area to gain that experience while then you continue to look for a job in early intervention. And trust me, it will guide your practice. It will provide you so much more experience and really help with that kind of holistic view. So when you get into EI, you have a much better understanding of what else is out there and then allow that to really kind of facilitate and promote your practice in early intervention. I love that you said that, Sarah, because it is so vital to have these previous experiences, especially if you're feeling that going into early intervention is such a big jump. These are really good ways to get that experience working with pediatrics before taking that leap into early intervention or alongside because you can still take a couple of hours in early intervention, take a couple of hours somewhere else. I also, you know, even though I was in early intervention since 18 as As a teacher, when I went into it as an occupational therapist, I was in school-based and early intervention, which I really agree with you, really supports that transition process and just gives a whole nother set of skills that you can add to your tool bag. Now, 
Another way that you can prepare for transitioning into early intervention is continuing education credits, professional development. So Sarah, what are some suggestions that you have that people can take a look at to help them feel more confident in transitioning into an early intervention setting? So a few of my go-tos that I would mention to anybody that is considering going into early intervention, and we will make sure to link to all of these in the show notes, but as far as continuing education units, a few of the ones that I always recommend and are ones that I have taken and have had lots of other colleagues and friends that have taken them and recommend them as well. Two of the biggest ones for feeding specifically would be the Beckman Oral Motor Protocol and the SOS, the Sequential Oral Sensory Approach to Feeding. Both of those when taken together, have just completely revolutionized my practice in feeding and, and how I go about my feeding therapy. I would also recommend doing an NDT course and some sensory courses as well. If you can find some that are specific to infant and toddler, even better. And then two books that I would recommend. They're both written by Ann Zachary, who's also an OT. It's Retro Baby and Retro Toddler. And they really detail about going back to the basics of child development and shying away from all the fancy bells and whistles, toys, and all the technology and everything that society really kind of throws upon us right now. And I think a lot of parents feel like they need to get the top of the line. They need to spend a lot of money. They need to get everything for their child. And these two books really boil it down to the basics of utilizing a box and a ball or utilizing kitchen utensils, getting back to the foundational levels of how kids develop and how we as practitioners or parents can really support their development without spending an arm and a leg and without using all these fancy therapy equipment. So these are really my go-tos when anybody is asking for specific resources to guide their early intervention practice. Sarah, those were some great suggestions. Another um, one that came to mind as well was reach out to your local early intervention agencies. Even if they do not have available positions to start, they might be willing to allow you to shadow and ask questions or just gain a little bit more information or just observation. So remember, you are not alone. There are resources out there. You absolutely can transition into early intervention, regardless of where you're coming from or if you're a new graduate. In today's episode, we talked all about transitioning to early intervention, whether it be from adults or new grad or any other setting. We want to hear from you. Have you transitioned from another setting into early intervention? Are you thinking about it? What are some of the things that you have encountered along your way? Let us know your thoughts. You can reach out to us at www.therealots.com or on Instagram at therealots of EI. We're so excited you joined us today. Check out our website, therealots.com for more information about anything discussed in the episode and sign up for our email list so you don't miss out on any of our awesome EI resources. And join our amazing community of students and practitioners to get your questions answered and learn from others working in early intervention. Whether you're in the car, on your lunch break, or signing in to your next virtual session, thanks for keeping it real with the real OTs of early intervention. 